Welcome to Coffee House. We're back. The book is now available. It is it is Once Upon a Vampire, Coffee House Presents. And it is a collection, as we did, I think it was the last episode, right? We did a collection of hilarious and harrowing and interesting and, and just plain weird stories from aspiring authors and discussed and dissected and all that sort of thing. So if you want to check that out, that is now available on Amazon's bookstore. And otherwise, today we have a super special kind of book here that is kind of the foundation of everything that I would like to do going forward because the point is to try to understand things so sufficiently to be able to wrap up our species as the bridge between man and superman so in service of that end we have read the archaeology of mind neuroevolutionary origins of human emotion by yak pangsep the first edition was published in 2012 this is going to be a part one because this thing is uh as you can imagine <laughs> extremely dense so we chose this uh, we're trying to encircle and explicate kind of the final and most complex frontier of human inquiry and i don't mean the final frontier you know with green women that sort of thing i mean the human mind so in aid of that goal, we are reading uh, one of the likely most important thinkers in the area at this point. And there is so much to this, uh, we should probably read it two or three times before we... <laughs> and a couple of books that are around this area before we get into this. But here we are. So, as always, we'll go through the contents of the book. We'll do an analysis in a later episode. <laughs> and we'll do a big picture assessment of this stuff. For now, we are looking at the contents. <laughs> So the primary concept in the book is that the author is arguing for the importance of affective neuroscience over cognitive neuroscience, or at least as a genuine contender to understanding the way that human brains work. So affective neuroscience acknowledges and uses as a fundamental mechanism the emotions and the ancient artifacts in our brain that we share with other mammals. So as a result, whether animals feel emotions and how they feel those emotions and how they function is important to understanding human emotions. So cognitive neuroscience, and this is obviously a, just a vastly oversimplified version, a false binary here that we're talking about, but it's helpful for we feeble-brained humans to actually put it into these terms. So for cognitive neuroscience... It treats humans as rational actors seated primarily in their forebrain, the, neo the neocortex, where the emotions that bubble up from the older parts of the brain are kind of read out and mediated by the rational part of the brain. Cognitive neuroscience cares little about emotions. Okay, some early concepts that show up in the book are things like uh, monomania. So you can only have a base urge one at a time. So it's either going to be a strong urge for sex or a strong urge for hunger. You're not generally going to be holding a turkey leg in the middle of the sex. But the author suggests that you need to understand the effective needs, the affective needs of a person to be able to treat better and to, and to target meds better. He brings up, and this is something Jordan Peterson has talked about a lot, is about animals and their rough and tumble play. If one of the animals wins more than 70% of the time, then the the other animals stop wanting to play but there's likely you know analogous artifacts in the human brain that may have had minor modifications over the course of millions of years that have the same effects and do the same work when it comes to how humans function and there are things that you can learn you know things like a positive support hold benefits if you get positive support early on it'll have benefits throughout the rest of your life but you shouldn't protect from all negative emotions that creates a problem that we are likely seeing the dramatic effects of today. When you try to protect from all negative emotions, then later disappointments in life when you're an adult can lead to very deep depression. And I think that's a really important and interesting thing to keep in mind. One thing that we talked about in relation to another book is how the 
castration of children from nuts because there are some children who are allergic to nuts. So when you started separating children from nuts all over the place, you did an ex extreme version of this to try to protect them. Then you had this skyrocketing of nut allergies because other children who would have otherwise come into contact with them on a regular basis and developed resistance to it, they weren't able to do that. So now it's, it's a more grave danger for them because they were overly coddled. And you likely have the same effect when it comes to emotions early on. If you're sequestered and protected from all negative emotions, then by the time to get, when you get to later life, when you're younger, you're more capable of adapting to things that happen to you. But in later life, you're less capable of adaptation. So when you have negative emotions later on, they're going to have a more deep depressive effect on you. So moving on from that concept, again, really fascinating one. So uh, ancestral passions. So this is where we kind of start out. That we have these ancient emotional regions that are in all mammals. And they're very important to understand if we want to understand how humans function. So he mentioned seven emotional mediating systems. He breaks it down into these categories. So there's seeking, care, play, and lust. Those are the positive ones. Seeking, care, play, and lust. And then there's fear, sadness, and anger. Now, I think these categories are excessively crude. <laughs> now, I obviously, I haven't read all of his works, and uh, there are likely contours to each one of these that make sense for purposes of his theory. But I think it's, it's really kind of odd to have these seven words as kind of the basis for your neuroscience. Interesting tidbit when it comes to our ancestral passions is that jealousy comes from different regions in the male and female brains. So when it comes to female jealousy, it actually is seated in higher cognitive functions, whereas male jealousy is seated in lower cognitive fu or lower functions. So a female jealousy would be more neocortex, where they're doing something more analytical, whereas the male jealousy is, is deeper. It's down like in the reptilian hindbrain, where it's just a, a visceral reaction. And the, the likely reason for that is because they have different interests in the relationship. So the idea is that males would be more interested in being concerned about paternity. That's what they're worried about. That's more of a visceral interest. Whereas females are more concerned about where resources are going to be expended. They want the resources of their mate to be expended on them, not on somebody else. So that's why you have this uh, this difference, this disparate method of processing this uh, something that would be could be the same. It could be the same way processed through either gender, but it's not. And one thing the author hammers on over and over again is that other animals have affective experiences. So they have these these emotions that are analogous or very very similar to what humans experience, and that's something that's really important to understand. So the way the brain is stacked just in general is that, and this is just a rule of thumb, you know, it's not something that's absolute, but you have it that the higher position that a region has in the brain, it's more recent. So the neocortex is the most recent, whereas the reptilian hindbrain is the least recent. It's, it's the farthest, the most ancient. So the claim is from other theorists is that animal emotions are purely automatic. They just happen. You know, it's just a one-to-one. -one. They just, there's a, a stimulus and they react and that's the end of it. And then the theory about the human brain is that there's this readout process where you have the neocortex that is reading out the emotions that are arising from the lower parts of the brain. But for Yak Pongsep, it's that the affective feelings that we have are fundamental to consciousness, They're, or they are fundamental consciousness, the affective feelings as opposed to whatever's going on in the neocortex, the cognitive aspects. 
So it's hard to see pure feelings. There are so many mediating things that are going on. And one thing that humans tend to do and have tended to do over the course of hundreds of years of thinking about this is that they see cognition as primary. So that just mediating force of determining, uh, you know, mathematics, what's mathematically true, what's logically true, seeing that as primary has been something that is that is what humans have done historically. But we don't get to see the pure feelings and how they arise, how they function, what they're doing to us and all that. Some argue that affects are learned socially, so it's something that you pick up as you go through society. But he rejects this uh, idea. He says that our emotions are ancestral, that all mammalian brains have this same effect. And also that the physical brain must be a primary focus of study. You have to look at the physical brain to really understand this stuff. And you have to study animal behaviors to be able to understand what humans are doing, because those are our ancestors that are going through much the same things that we do. Animals can become addicted to many of the same substances. <laughs> That's why when it comes to how the pathways work and what we become dependent upon neurologically, animals and, uh, you know, non-human animals and humans uh, can become addicted to the same things. And you have this uh, observed behavior in animals where they will trade dominance in play. So if they're doing rough and tumble play and one of them is uh, getting the best of the other one too much, then they will trade dominance so that the other one can feel dominant for a little while so it doesn't become bullying. <laughs> if it's too dominant for too long, it becomes bullying. And this sparked an idea that I had been considering about a narrative cascade. So what I mean by that is that I'm trying to understand kind of a more complex structure when it comes to how people make decisions, how people think about the world, and that's going to be based on archetypes and memetics. And when it comes to the narrative cascade, what I'm saying is that you have things that will fit into an archetype, you know, a large structure that's built of memes and ideas. It's something analogous to the way that, that genes work, is that with genes you have the base pairs, you have the amino acids acids and then you have the large proteins and the proteins when they are glommed together those are what you know the real complexity comes from the proteins and so when it comes to memetics it would be a similar thing is that when you have an archetype an archetype is like the protein that is plugged together with a whole bunch of different memes and it has different shapes uh, that have different functions so when it comes to a narrative cascade in this situation is that uh, you would have an archetype and it has all these different parts to it and if you fit enough of the things into the archetype then you'll accept all the rest of the archetype when it comes to an idea. And so I think that we are built of a bunch of these different archetypes that are layered on top of each other with different priority based on kind of the shape of it. And so a narrative cascade would be that you'd fill enough of these things in an archetype that you will just download all the rest of the archetype. So anyway, that was a, an aside that was totally unnecessary in that particular situation because this is already complex enough. We could just try to understand what he's saying first. So uh, moving on to oxytocin. Oxytocin was is obviously a very important chemical to the brain, and he talks about how it makes people more, if there's more oxytocin, it makes people more social and loving. And there are deep roots of the oxytocin system. You know, it's something that you find in animals as well. And you have oxy that's released postpartum in mothers to create that bonding effect and make them more social. Uh, and if you don't have them, you'll end up with postpartum depression if you don't have that release of oxytocin, which some mothers uh, don't have. But he kind of points it out as it's less a love molecule, it's more of an increased confidence molecule. And I'm sure these distinctions are very important in his analysis, but we can only go so deep into each one of these things. 
Okay, so there are different theories. There are different theories in the way that we try to understand things, or that animals would understand things. So we could process experiences without understanding them. And that's the assumption about what animals do: is they they don't understand anything; they just process. And there's this idea of noetic consciousness, and the definition of noetic consciousness is that it allows an organism to be aware of and to cognitively operate on objects and events and relations among objects and events in the absence of those objects and events. So really important concept is that you can sit and think about something that's not here. You know, I can think about an apple. I need to eat an apple. I haven't had my apple yet. But you can think about an apple and consider it in many different ways as a human. So that's a kind of noetic consciousness. And what he's trying to say is that animals have something similar to that as well. And also that affects, the affects as opposed to the cognition, are the basis of our psychological being. And we have to approach it in that manner. Okay, so the evolution of the affective consciousness, looking at other animals, this is an important topic as well. How did we get to the to the ideas that we have, and where are we on the spectrum of ideas related to consciousness? So it could just be a general good and bad. There just could be, you know, one versus zero. <laughs> there could just be a true versus a false that are pushing us, that's pushing us one way or another. But he says that we show distinct primal affects. There are ways that we can carve these things out, that it's more complex than and more useful than simply saying good and bad. Humans can ruminate on emotions, and one thing about ruminating on emotions is that you can keep them going. You can egg on your own emotions and keep them going if you ruminate. Many theorists, uh, and I would count myself in this lot, although it's a really, <laughs> like, it's a complex thing to talk about what is consciousness, because it's really difficult to have a definition that's going to step outside of just our solipsistic experience of, of what we are. You know, the, it's really easy to plug in our own ego and arrogance to try to say that there's something special about the way that we experience the world. But anyway, so a lot of theorists would say that there's no consciousness, it's not real. And here he goes through kind of the history of it. And he's saying that uh, you actually need to understand the first-person perspective experience to be able to understand what ails people and to be able to treat them. And I think that's completely 100% legitimate. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Although uh, I, I would think that the people themselves as sources of information to be able to do that treatment are probably the worst to be asking about it. They don't have a clue why they want to do whatever they want to do or why they think what they think. They might be able to offer like biographical details that would be <laughs> extremely helpful if they could do that in a and the way that they react to their own reactions and their own biographical details and they react to other people that could be uh, useful but otherwise you know not great sources of information. But so he goes into dualism and Descartes, you know the soul versus the matter kind of idea. There were these people, the second Germans. I didn't write a single note about them, so I apologize for that. But then when it comes to the Greeks, they actually expressed an idea of dualism before Descartes came around. And, the you know, the idea of the platonic forms, you know, Plato had an idea that expressed a kind of dualism, that there were these perfect forms and there were the manifestations of the perfect forms. And there was a distinction between the two. There was an Aristotle soul theory. And I think Aristotle, it wasn't like a personal soul, like in Christianity. It was an impersonal soul that could be in anything, like a rock could have a soul or something like that. Then you have St. Augustine, which, or St. Augustine, uh, which uh, advocated kind of a personal soul in line with Christianity. And Christianity had this very strong and far-reaching idea of the personal soul that was distinct from the body. Although that's actually a fascinating topic on its own, is how much was the soul distinct from the body and whether the 
body would be resurrected, how important the body was. You know, obviously Jesus came back with a body that was still had the injuries from his crucifixion. So there are a lot of things um, philosophically to consider when it comes to what Christians actually thought about the body-soul dualism. But today, any anybody that you ask, they would likely say, yes, there's a soul that exists apart from the body. So dualism has had a, a you know very strong history, and there's Hippocrates and the vitalism who uh, ascribed illness to states of the body rather than mystical forces. You know this is an important step to get to the kind of medicine that we had have today. That's why you have a Hippocratic oath. He was so important. He was still dualist according to the author, uh, and he had this idea of the four humors. The, there were these four categories that if they're imbalanced, then they lead to illnesses and all that sort of thing. But so after the Renaissance, then we get medical enhancement. We get the Berlin Biophysics Club. Maybe that's what I was referencing in the second German's comment above. But anyway, the Berlin Biophysics Club, they kind of abandoned dualism, and they said there's a physical world alone. But then we had a different development in psychology. Psychology was slower to come to this determination than the rest of the medical world in saying that, no, we're just physical, and we have to figure out the physical manifestations of this stuff. Incidentally, uh, likely <laughs> this idea about the world had probable ramifications that have left us in a, a dire situation when it came to losing a lot of the religion that we had historically. So although it might have enhanced our ability to medically treat ailments, it might have de-enhanced or de-enhanced our ability to buttress ourselves against psychological ailments. So uh, I mean that again, another interesting topic that we can't get into right now. But so then you have the behaviorists who only looked at the external. They only looked at behavior and they treated the brain as a black box that they just bypassed and didn't even look into. And then you have uh, B.F. Skinner who disdained emotions. He said that the affective aspects of humanity are not of interest. He said that you can take a child, if you give me a child young enough and you let him control, you know, the, the circumstances of their raising, then he can make that child into anything, whether it's a rocket scientist or a serial killer. He can make them into anything. Thing. And then you have Thorndike, and um, you have this discussion of behaviorists who defined people in operational terms. It was just rewards and punishments. Is did they get a reward or did they get punished? And that's it. That's how they decide how to make the next uh, determination. But as the author points out, the emotions that are in the background are controlling their responses to stimuli. So it's really important to understand those emotions to be able to understand how they're going to respond to stimuli. It's just stopping, you know, at the front gate if you just say, okay, what's the behavior? What's the reactive behavior? And all that. He brings up Aristotle and, and the others who thought originally that emotions came from the heart, which is a really interesting concept on its own because obviously it's something, if you feel an emotion, your heart changes its rate of beat. It makes sense that you would seat an emotion there, but I know that some, weren't there some dinosaurs that actually had a second brain that was uh, somewhere near the heart or associated with the heart or something like that? I, I know that's a real thing. I'm not just making that up, but I, I didn't look into it as thoroughly as I should have. Then he brings up Pavlov and how Pavlov never rejected affect in dogs. You know, even though Pavlov was so interested in conditioned response, it was never an aspect of his understanding of psychology to say that animals don't have any affect. So behaviorism dominated for like 50 years, and then the mind was resurrected as a basis uh, of understanding. And then you get the computational theory of mind, and that's what's born now. And it's just the mechanics of information processing. That's that's what we're looking at, and that's where we get the readout idea. It most closely resembles computer software. So you get the readout idea of what emotions are. 
So there was this chilling effect of behaviorism on affect studies, because again, it treated the brain as kind of a black box, so it didn't look into it anymore. So you have behaviorism and computational theory that are chilling the look into affective neuroscience. And at the time, most still like the readout theory by the neocortex. The neocortex is just reading out what the emotions are and mediating in the meantime. So he says here, which is a wonderful turn, is that it's all well and good to try to take down behaviorism and readout theory, but you need to support your own position. So then he starts talking about how animals have emotional feelings, brings up the seeking system, you know, really important. That's the first one that he talks about in his seven, the seeking system, which is the most studied system that we have in mammals. They looked at it in the form of rewards versus punishments, but the seeking system, you know, very important. And then I have an acronym here that I did not write. It's the MFBLH, the mediofrontal bilateral something. I don't know. But apparently stimulating that. And then you have animals who will appear enthused. And in humans, they will become more interested in the world when you stimulate this area. And it's closer to general euphoria than sensory body pleasure. So that is going to be, yeah, that's already half an hour. Uh, when I cut this down, it'll be shorter, but that's already half an hour discussing this stuff. So um, that's going to be this episode, part one of Affective Neuroscience. Uh, no, it's not Affective Neuroscience. It's the Archaeology of Mind, Neuroevolutionary Origins of Human Emotion. So that's part one, Yak Pongsep. Fantastic stuff. I mean, I think he is tremendously on the right track. This is something historically, I guess we can move into a, a, an analysis of part one, <laughs> but we're not going to do a big picture. So I think he has moved into something that is really the next step that is is the, the step before the step to our Copernicus moment in understanding the way that humans think. You know, historically, I would have certainly been one of those who decried studies of affect or emotions in general and trying to understand people. It would have been just uh, taking a sledgehammer and forcing people <laughs> into being rational, even though that's not something that would be like programming computer to always choose the 100% correct decision, uh, which they tried to do. They would try to put a, a robot like in a desert and say and try to program them to no only always pick the 100% correct decision without having some kind of mechanism for just looking at things probabilistically. And I think that's kind of the way that humans, that we have to look at humans, because the reality is that humans and human emotions are much more complex and much more deeply rooted than our cognitive rational brains are. So it is, and when it comes to just uh, nutrition, this is something that has been kind of important to me recently too, or getting vitamin D, you know, all those things. We are in these archaic bodies and we have to understand that that's what we are, no matter how when it comes to our ego or self-importance or anything else, uh, we can try to pretend that we are something else. We're something greater than that, but we're not. We have to understand this first before we can try to get to a new step or a new frontier of what humans are and are capable of. So I think he's really, really on the right track here. And so it's fantastic to read. We will continue reading it. And we'll probably have some stuff popping up in the meantime, just because this is going to be a lot of neuroscience talk all at once. But I, I hope it was enjoyable. I hope there was something learned from this episode. And I hope that this will be one big leap to really understanding how humans work so that we can get over our petty weaknesses. But we'll see. So I uh, hope all is well. Please check out my book. I will put a link to the to the thing in there somewhere. If you if you want to take a look at it, you know, I think it's a lot of fun. I think I will also do an audio book because I think that might be, it, it'll be a little difficult to, <laughs> to do because there's all these little comments that are kind of plugged in there, but I think I might try it. So anyway, I hope all is well. Uh, I hope to see you on the next one. Otherwise, uh, take it easy. Mm -hmm.